SPG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles and with me are Richard, Ian and Alexander. In today's episode we will be talking about Isildur. If you haven't already, follow us on our Facebook page. Just search Into the West podcast and there you will find more content and also all our army lists will be posted there so you'll be able to follow along. And in our open topic, we'll be discussing how to run a good tournament. All right, let's dive right into the profile of the day. It was in this moment, when all hope had faded, that Isildur, son of the king, took up his father's sword. Isildur has the Numenor, man, infantry, and hero keywords. He's a hero of valor found in the Numenor army list. He's 120 points, and he is uh, movement 6, fight 6, strength 5, defense 7, 3 attacks, 3 wounds, courage 6. He has 3 might, 2 will, and 2 fate, and he comes with heavy armor and a hand and a half sword. He can call heroic strike and heroic strength, and he has 3 war gear options, a horse for 10 points, shield for 5 points, and the one ring for free. As long as the force does not contain Elendil or Anarion, then Isildur may carry the ring. And he has one special rule, which is the Blood of Numenor. Any model with this rule gain the resistant to magic special rule. If they're within six inches of Elendil, Isildur, or Anarion. And since uh, Isildur is within six inches of himself, he always has resistance to magic. Going over this profile, I think he is a pretty solid combat hero. He has all the stats of a beefy beat stick, and um, I guess the thing that stands out to me right away is that he has the one ring. Generally, other than Sauron, we see the ring on either Bilbo, Frodo, or Gollum, which are like much, much smaller heroes. So, first of all, this profile is such a tease. Where's Anarion? What the hell, GW? Get on that. (laughs) Um, Hey, maybe by the time this episode is released, we'll have... The expansion with Anarion. Don't don't let me get my hopes up. We're gonna have to redo the whole thing if that's the case. Okay, so I haven't used him a lot in this edition. I used him last edition when he could have his invisible horse running around and it was really stupid. But this edition, I, I haven't used him much. He can't have his horse be invisible anymore because as soon as he puts on the ring, he he becomes automatically dismounted. But honestly, when I did use him. I don't know if I used the ring that much in maybe three or four games or so with him. And I don't think I put the ring on that much. Just because having a strength five fight six hero running around on a horse is just so good. I don't know if you guys had any experiences with him. Just like like people just take him without the horse or like what do you guys usually have you guys seen him? You're kind of right. Like the invisibility, the ability to have your enemy's fight value is nice on foot. But generally, I don't think it's better than getting the cavalry charge. In certain situations, especially like defensively, it's nice to have the ring. But yeah, I know what you mean. Like you don't find yourself using it all the time. But it is like a really strong ability if he does get dismounted or if you are up against a hero and you want them to guarantee beating them in a fight, then the ring is the way to go. I think one more thing that we have to consider with the ring is that a lot of people don't think about the hierarchy. And he's actually right under the Dark Lord, Sauron. So um, there's not a lot of Veridor lists in tournaments, at least locally, that we see. So 
essentially you'll have first dibs. So against all the goblin towns and probably the future breaking of the fellowships, like, you know, or even like a lake town list that takes Bilbo Baggins, like they'll suddenly not have the ring. So a 60 point Bilbo, which is basically worthless now. So I think that's pretty cool. I, I, I'm happy you brought that up because I, I was thinking about this when we when I was writing my list. But I, do you think we might see a bit of a shift in the meta when we go back to tournaments where people take more ring bearers? Because basically everybody is higher than Gollum. Like just as a way to combat the big Goblin Town lists that are winning everything right now. Do you think you, you'll see more like Isildur their allied in with high elf lists just because, you know, nah, 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 you don't get the ring anymore? I, I mean, it's a good show because... Kind of like we'll see in our list today, too. He's a hero of valor. So um, if you're going to take a Numenor contingent, you know, you might as well take this guy for cheaper. And, you know, like he loses the ring if he's with any other named Numenor hero. So you get the extra value if you take him alone. Yeah, speaking of the other Numenor hero, I think Isildur might be a little bit overshadowed because of how good Elendil is this edition and just how much of a powerhouse he is. You know, he's kind of like the mini version of him. That's <laughs> not necessarily to say that he's bad at all. I mean, in fact, there are very few men heroes with fight six. There are very few men heroes with strength five. He's actually one of the top men heroes in terms of stats in the game. So I definitely think that he would be used more if people just took a look at the profile closely again. For 120 points, that's pretty good. The way you're comparing him to Elendil, Elendil would be like Tom Hanks. And then, like, Isildur would be, like, Colin Hanks. You know, like, of course, like, everyone looks at, like, the big daddy. But, you know, like, his son, he's a respectable <laughs> actor. And you know what? You rarely see them in the same movie. But, like, he is solid still. Solid thing. I, <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, I have to agree. Like, he, he, he is a generally, like, a really good pick as, like, your secondary hero choice. Like, with... Or without the ring. Like, if you have Valendia, you don't get the ring. But that's fine, like we were saying. Like, you don't need the ring to, for him to be super effective. But yeah, I, would, I agree with what you guys are saying. Like, he is definitely super overshadowed by Elendil. Which, it makes sense to me, but I think they kind of serve different purposes, I guess, in a list. Like, Elendil can duel heroes and he can do, like, good stuff against heroes. But he can also just get stopped for, like, two turns by somebody heroic defensing. And then your 200-point model isn't doing anything. Whereas a Sealdor doesn't care like he kind of wants to go in and duel heroes if he has the ring or if he's like going in on the horse and it's not as much being held up whereas elendil kind of just wants to munch troops and do damage to things i guess speaking of heroic defense i think that's the only thing that Isildur is lacking to make him like the perfect combat hero but you can't really complain at 120 points base well especially when he can hit d8 with the shield like it's good enough yeah uh, pretty much fearless and and fight six with the ring, it's going to be very hard to beat him in a fight. The other thing we haven't talked about is that he's a Numenor, which is not an easy faction to ally. And having only one warrior, the Warrior of Numenor profile in the list, he either has to be allied in as a single drop or take Warriors of Numenor, which, in my opinion, are not the greatest warrior type to ally in. It's a very good profile in a mediocre list that has a mediocre alliance matrix. So I think I'm sitting at about a seven. I, I don't think the Warriors of Numenor are like are bad by any means. I think that they're pretty good for their points for what they bring. I mean, it depends on if you consider the army bonus or not. But let's say you are, and then they have the resistance to magic rule too. So 
they have a very solid base profile, and then you add in those two things, and they, they can make a really good allied contingent. But like you're saying, yeah, the ally matrix isn't kind to them. You basically only get elves and like the Misty Mountains and, and Fangorn, which I think probably the best ally for them would be Lothlorien, I think. Just because you have those these big hitty heroes in the list, and then you can use Galadriel's command in somebody and then just whack them on the head. I think compliments the best, or high elves, because that's just a green alliance, which is nice. But I, I I don't know if I'd call the whole list terrible. It's, I think it's pretty solid, and it's got a lot of things going for it, but definitely has some weaknesses that need to be covered. As for Sealdor himself, I don't know. He's got a lot going for him. I think I'll go for an 8. Yeah, because he, he's still a very reasonably priced hero, and he does buff the troops a little bit. Ultimately, just looking at the profile, I mean, you guys have brought up some really good points. Obviously, the Alliance Matrix uh, for Sealdor, Numenor as a whole isn't great and it, it does bring them down they have their obvious weaknesses as an army as a whole but a sealed as a single profile he's one of those heroes that i think for his price you can easily kind of toss in places he is that hero of valor so he can get into any convenient alliance if you want to single drop him i think that's probably the way to go i wouldn't say the alliance matrix is terrible i just say it's limited because they do get rivendell there's just so much going for him. I think the only thing he really misses is, like we said, defense. If he had her up March, that would be something. But I think on the whole, he's a very good profile. It's difficult to really argue that you're getting anything wrong by taking him. I think I'd give him probably about yeah, an eight and a half. Yeah, not to go into what you guys have all already said, but I think he's just really overshadowed by um, his dad in this list. But when you look at him, just in a vacuum, I think he's extremely solid. Any other list, I think he would be like a top pick. So I got to go with an eight. Let's get into some army lists that we wrote today. So the first list we'll be going over is Alexander's list. 600 points of pure Numenor with Isildur. So I think given the assignment, 600 points, pure Numenor, is really quite self-explanatory. I could have gone about one of two ways, and the variation really wouldn't have been very much. They obviously only have one troop choice, so I think you guys know what my main troop is going to be. It's going to be the Warrior of Numenor. The only question I had to answer was, do I want to take a Sealdor and a Lendial, or do I want to get the Heroic March and something a bit cheaper and go with a Captain and kit the Captain out on horse with the Lance and Heavy Armor? So ultimately, it come down to... Elendil, High King of Gondor and Arnor, with a horse and shield. Eight warriors of Numenor, a shield and spear. One warrior with banner, shield, and spear. And three warriors with bow and spear. And then a Sealdor, horse and shield. Nine warriors of Numenor, shield and spear. Three warriors with bow and spear. 600 points, uh, 26 models, 6 might. Ultimately, what's... What's the game plan with this shows where the list lacks real low mobility because I don't have heroic march and I don't have any cavalry. So I'm going to have to hopefully start up close to my opponent. Other than that, I've got the few bows, honesty bows, you know, but aside from that, I think it would be a lot of shielding with my troops and letting Elendil and Isildur do the majority of the damage Hopefully, I think those two can really pull it out. And of course, all the spears I throw in there for a reason, because then I've got maximum support when they do want to go into combat and actually fight. I think that's probably the direction I'd go with it. So, 
last edition, you basically saw this exact list, but at 500 points. And it was a lot worse. Because the heroes weren't as good and the warriors weren't good. Nothing, like, meshed as well. And it was the same, like, exactly what you're saying. The heroes would just go in and chew through troops until your guys all died before they could do that. Or they'd destroy the entire enemy army. And then, obviously, the biggest risk to that was they could get immobilized and taken down. But now you have these two big heroes, and they both have resistance to magic at the worst, basically. And in Wendy's case, he gets two dice. So, <laughs> I think it could definitely work. Yeah, it, it, it's a solid army. So, I guess, personally, my playstyle, I would probably have gone with two captains instead of Elendil, just because you also get the ring and you get the march. And I think that's quite important, considering that you're a D4, D5 army that doesn't have that much shooting power. But with that said, like, having Elendil and Zildor in a 600-point list, like, certain armies are just not going to be able to deal with that, and that is scary. Yeah, so I think this is kind of a gamble, where I think you'll absolutely stomp some lists. But I think you'll also come up with some that might shoot you off the table. So, yeah. I, I guess it's ooh, like a strong forward tune, I would say. Yeah, Yeah, I just want to jump in quickly on that because that was essentially the debate, like I said, I came down to was do I want the captain or do I want a Lendial? And I thought 600 points is right on that cusp where I think, you know, if it was 700, obviously I'd, I'd want captains. But at 600, I think it's right on that cusp where having those two really big combat heroes makes it really difficult. Alex, I think the question wasn't between Elendil or Captain. I think the question was Elendil or two Captains, because you would max out your warbands far before you hit 600 points if it was just one Captain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and two Captains is actually cheaper than Elendil. Like, a Numeral Captain is really good value, one of the best Captains, so mm -hmm. uh, you'd be able to add a couple of models to that as well, maybe hit close to 30. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I just felt that at 600 points, having two huge combat heroes like that was pretty formidable, so I was like, it's one way or the other, and I essentially flipped a coin. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The other thing that just kind of caught me off guard is how many spears you have. I don't know if you need so many spears. You have spears on pretty much every war. Yeah, every warrior has a spear. Maybe it's because you would only get one more warrior if you dropped half your spears, and that wouldn't increase your breakpoint. So I could see your argument for giving everyone spears, but I might actually go for the extra body just because you're you're under 30 and they're soft, so you want every um, every warrior that you can get. But other than that, I pretty much agree with Richard. Like I'd probably go with the captains, so you would get the one ring. But I don't think that this list would necessarily do bad at a tournament. It just it'll really come down to scenario and your opponent. You, you'll just have to hope that you're not playing against a really shooty army or or an army that can just wipe out your warriors before you can break them. Yeah, I'm probably sitting at a fortitude as well. The scariest thing for this entire list is probably a Rangers of Athelion Legendary Legion. Not even lying. Just the number of bows. It would be. Um... I think it would be the off the table <laughs> for any army at low points. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna be nicer than the other two, and I think it's a strong, maybe not a strong, but like a like weak valor, because I have seen what this list can do at low points, and it is gross. And that was before these heroes were as crazy as they are now. But like they said, if you run into a bow army and your heroes get dismounted, then you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. 
So that's kind of the name of the game is if you can keep them mounted long enough, I think you'll probably win a lot of your games. If not, you'll be in trouble. The fact that you don't have the captain for the march in there, it'd be really nice to have it. But I don't think it's a game breaker at this level because Elendil has the free heroic combats. So he can do a lot of movement really quickly every turn, right, if you need him to. So he can redeploy quick. He can go after enemy heroes all the time, like Bolglum, the, the little tactic. So your mobility isn't as bad as it looks. But yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think it, it's a Valor. It just kind of pips in there for me. Okay. The next army list will be Ian's list, which is a 700-point convenient alliance with Isildur. Okay. So <laughs> my initial plan, which I thought was the more competitive option, was to go for uh, Lothlorien and ally into Galadriel into the list. But then I received some feedback from some of our local players after the episode that just launched, which was uh, the Imrahil the one. And they said I should probably try writing a list without Ally and Galadriel or Boromir or Elves or Mirkwood. So I was inclined to agree with them because I've done that a lot. So I ended up with this list, which I still think could actually be pretty decent. So anyway... My first warband is a Sealdor. He's got the horse and the shield. He has three warriors of Numenor with shield, three warriors of Numenor with spear and shield, one warrior with spear, shield, and banner, and four warriors of Numenor with bow and spear. The second warband is a captain of Numenor with heavy armor, shield, horse, and lance, and he has two warriors of Numenor with shield, five warriors with spear and shield, and four warriors with bow and spear. And my third warband is Gwahir with one great eagle. So... I'm just going to preempt what I know you guys are going to say. Get rid of the bows. I think that kind of comes down to playstyle. And in the end, I decided to keep them, but I gave them all spears so they can still kind of hide behind the other combat troops and do shooting. And even though that is the maximum number of bows I can take with the amount of models I have, I want to emphasize that these are still 100% just honesty bows. If my opponent has anything more than, like, three shots... I'm not going to try and do a whole bunch of shooting. I just run up and get into combat as quick as possible because it's not worth getting into that with guys who are defense four and hit on a four up with strength two. It's just they're not going to do enough. The, the um, question is, can we call it honesty bows when it's actually maxed? It is max bows, but that's that's what I'm saying. Like, even though it's max bows, these are still just for the honesty bit. I toyed around with putting six of them in there, but I was like, you know what? If I'm going with six of them, I might as well just go for the extra two. Why not? Ian, honesty is like half. I know. Half I is know. honesty. I know. Max bows is no longer honesty bows. I don't care if they're only strength to man bows. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to emphasize that the way you play them is honesty bows. That's how you play them. Because your numbers are so finicky with the list, right? 26 models at 700 isn't great. I want to like Numenor bows. In the books, they had steel longbows, and they should be better than strength two. I but... <laughs> love it if they cost two points and were strength four. That would make yeah. them so unique. It would make Numenor, like, actually probably a pretty decent faction, honestly. If they got great bows, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just surprised why you didn't go all out and give the Numenor captain a bow, too, if you want to go down that road. <laughs> I didn't have the points. <laughs> drop the lance and the shield. No! <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. He's got to drop the shield anyway because he doesn't get the defense. If you take the bow. Oh, well. Oh, yeah, on the captain, yeah. You could drop the shield off the captain to the boat if you want. Bow and lance. 
It's been done before. I like the defense seven on the captain because then he can go in but with the five five defense seven. He can roadblock. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. obviously. It wasn't a serious suggestion. Hey, hey, I've heard crazier things. I'm pretty sure I heard somebody take that on the Green Dragon once years ago. So I'm just going to say it straight up. I, I don't agree with your composition there with the bows. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know. I was really struggling with it. But the reason I decided on doing the bows is because the, the troops aren't going to be doing most of the fighting in this list. It's going to be the two eagles, the captain, and Isildur. Even at 700 points, that's a lot of hitting power, right? Yeah. They're going to sit behind and maybe take a couple pot shots if they're sitting on objectives, right? Because if you have objectives, you're going to need somebody to sit there. Might as well leave those guys there. They have bows. Mm-hmm. You only have 26 models, and you're, you're kind of just leaving eight of them at defense four. I mean... It's just... I don't think they give enough in return. I prefer the flexibility of having the option to shoot. And then the other thing is, if you know you're going to be outshot, you can make your shield wall, put your guys through a defense four behind it, then they'll have two in the ways while you run everybody forward. And then you have, like, a reserve at line to, to put in. Don't get me wrong, you're going to need to do a lot of really careful infantry play and, like, hero play. This is not, like, a beginner-friendly list. I would agree with you. If you wanted to go easier to play, I would go for everybody having shields instead. But if you want to go for more options, which is kind of what I like, I'd go for the bows. What about a crazy suggestion? Because this is kind of easy to break already. To change the Numenor captain into uh, like a Rivendell captain and then take one full warband of just high elves so they can kind of like shield and survive with their high fight value. Drop all the Numenor uh, warriors and take another eagle. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, it's like a hit squad with your heroes, and then you have like this block of elves that try not to die. I think I'd get into even more trouble with Charles if I tried something like that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. No. (laughs) That's a no for me. But yeah, if you're going to do something like this, you might as well, you might just want to go all hero and have a sealed door in there. That might be the better play. With troops, I think this is a reasonable composition. Like, 26 models is low, but if you consider the Warriors of Numenor as maybe not elite, but they're, like, kind of on the cusp of that, right? I mean, that's why I suggested the elves, because the Warriors of Numenor are, like, super squishy for an elite troop, and you only have 26 models, so, like, it's, like, the same amount of models as Alex's list at 600. So, I mean, it's just like, it feels extremely (laughs) easy to break. But I have Gwahir, who can bowl Galandil, and that's a very rare thing. (laughs) Well, you're not going to be playing Alex's list at 600 (laughs) points. Speaking of Gwahir, it's like, three of your eight might is kind of not might that the rest of the army can necessarily benefit from. You'll have to use it on, like, strike or pure combat or something. It's a little bit awkward, but the double monster is kind of cool. Once combat is joined, ideally you should be able to set it up so you can have one of the eagles or both eagles on the flanks of the enemy line. And they can hurl it down the front line or hurl down the enemy line of troops. Then it doesn't matter if you have defense five, because if the enemy wins the fight, they're just going to be standing up instead of hitting you. So there's ways you can work around that. But yeah, getting into combat is going to be the big deal. The other thing I would say is a general playstyle of this is kind of like that Felbeast and Spiders list, where you had, like, Kamul and the Witch King and a whole bunch of spiders, and then, like, equal number of that in Moran and Orcs, and then the Moran and Orcs would just sit at the back of the table, not getting shot while the rest of your army runs forward. 
it's kind of like that, where you just throw the heroes forward, and then you have the warriors, maybe a small detachment move up, but not enough that you'll get broken. That's uh, why I'm going to push my elven three-eagle strategy again on you. It works better <laughs> like that. <laughs> I'm just going to give my rating, okay? You're mentioning some really cool like synergies and like ways to use the double monster, but the thing is, you have no grind potential because you spent so many of your models having bows throughout defense four. You're not going to outgrind any it's army at 700 points. Anyway, though. The strategies that you're pitching are grind strategies. So, you know, I was initially sitting at like a minor hero, but you've kind of convinced me to come up to a fortitude. So that's where I'm going to sit, I think. Fine. 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 I, that, no, no, that's fair. I'm just, what do you mean like this is a grind list? Your strategy is for your double monster in Isildur to win the game for you, right? You're going to use Hurls, you're going to use the Ring. But the thing is, you're going to break far too fast because not only do armies outnumber you, they'll, they'll either be higher defense or um, have 10 or more models than you. So it's going to be very hard for you to grind. Like, Warriors of Numenor are not good grind warriors to begin with, and you've made a third of them bows. So that makes your grind ability even lower because they can't shield and they're defense four. Well, yeah, we have different definitions of grinding lists then. <laughs> I would more define this as one that just hits hard and you go from there, right? Anyway. I'm really on the fence about this one. I mean, for the same reason that everyone else was on the fence about my list. It's the same issue, kind of. You have some really good heroes. I I like the Numenor Captain. Making a third of your army bows, I have to side with Charles a little bit on that one. The defense of Numenor Warriors is low enough without a shield, so to make a third of them not have a shield makes them a bit vulnerable. I feel like, as a podcast, we need a sound effect whenever somebody throws Guahir in a list, because it comes up so often. He's a really great hero. Like, Guahir, Boromir. (laughs) Guahir, Boromir, Galadriel, you know, any of those. Wait, you could do that in an alliance with Numenor. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to pretend we didn't say that. I like it. I like Guahir and a Great Eagle. I think it gives you a certain psychological edge in knowing that your list that generally doesn't have a lot of mobility can strike over a 12-inch distance. Again, though, 700 points, only 26 models. Charles is... I'm not going to say any more about it, just because Charles has gone over it quite a bit. I'll give it a fortitude. Yeah, sorry, Ian. This mishmash, I mean, I'm you know me, I'm a fan of alliances, but this is kind of an ugly abomination in my eyes. The two scenarios I see this list excelling at is probably Seize the Prize and Contest of Champions. The other ones, I feel like you, you're you just starting off on the wrong foot. So unfortunately, I'll give you a very, very, very strong minor hero. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very strong low grade. Wow. <laughs> Honestly, I'll, I'll yeah, I guess I'll take those ratings. I, I, I don't know if I can complain about them. I kind of want to try the list, though. I don't have eagles, but I kind of want to try it just to see if any of my ideas are actually going to work out how I picture it. <laughs> that is your first time writing eagles into a list, I think. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. Like Maybe you could drop the one eagle and get another captain in there and more troops, but your numbers only go up to like 30 or so. I don't, I don't know what you could do to just swap it out if you're doing eagles. Maybe a Rivendell faction. 
Okay, so the next list that we'll be covering will be my list, which is a historical alliance with Isildur. So I have Isildur with armor, horse, and the ring. And in his warband, there are five warriors in Numenor with spear and shield. Then I have Glorfindel as the leader. And in his warband, there's five high elves with shield, three high elves with spear and shield, three high elves with elf bows, and one high elf with spear, shield, and banner. I have Círdan, and in his warband, there's two high elves with shield, two high elves with spear and shield, two high elves with elf bow. And the final warband is a high elf captain with horse, shield, and lance. One high elf with shield, two high elves with spear and shield, and three high elves with elf bows. That's 32 models, 9 might, and 8 bows. So, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, Glorfindel is great as a leader, just for his survivability and his ability to counter magic, being like a solid all-around hero. He is easily going to be the best choice in this list. Um, It's mostly a Rivendell list because... I wanted to take advantage of just them being a historical alliance and High Elves being, in my opinion, overall the more solid, the more versatile warrior. Keeping the army bonuses isn't huge, but it gives everyone in the Numenor side a little more courage. And I've maxed out the bows here in order to take advantage of the Rivendell bonus. In certain scenarios, they might be able to get a few rounds of shooting with rerolls. So... I really wanted to hit the 32 model mark, and that's why I don't have any Rivendell Knights. I figured that taking three mounted heroes would be a good sort of offset to that. This list is going to be relying on the three mounted heroes to do most of the work, and Círdan is there for a supportive defensive role with his auras, and throwing enchanted blades on any of the three to boost them in fights. That's pretty much it. I, I like this list. I think it's a, a little different than the usual Last Alliance list you might see with like Elendil, Gilgalad, uh, or maybe Elrond. So you're taking a little bit of the slightly smaller heroes in Isildur and Glorfindel, but it's still very good. And yeah, Círdan is just awesome as well. Yeah, well balanced. I guess the only thing I would consider is, I know like Isildur is Strength 5 and Glorfindel is Lord of the West, but in an almost purely elf list, you're relying on your heroes to kill. So would Glorfindel be better or going with the twins, I wonder? Just for the two mounted heroes instead, and you kind of double up on the might. He'd have to lose a couple models to get them kitted out properly, though. True, but I guess he would go from like 32 to maybe like 30. I don't know. I would just say it's worth the consideration. I mean, I do like his current spec as well. And I guess the only other thing is I might also want to fit one or two Rivendell Knights, even if it drops uh, your model count to 30, because I I think they're just really good. But I think overall, I would say Hero of Valor. I really like this list. I love all of the hero choices. Sealdor for obvious reasons. You know, between the the two possible heroes that you can ally into this list, well, three, I guess, because it's a historic alliance. But he's, I think, the money ball pick, really, I think, the one that fits in best to make the most of the list. High Elf Captain, I think, is possibly the best generic captain in the game. You give him the horse, the shield, the lance, and he becomes 
your heroic march with quite a strong combat capability. Glorfindel, so all your main heroes are mounted. That definitely helps. I agree with Richard. I think maybe dropping a couple of models to get a couple of Rivendell Knights in there would have been nice. That's the one thing that I can really point out that I would have changed, just because I, I love the Rivendell Knights so much. But aside from that, you know, obviously the Alliance is great. The heroes all have a really strong ability to fulfill their roles in the list. Going mainly with the elves is definitely the better choice once we've looked over Numenor warriors in general. So I like it a lot. I'm going to give it a strong valor. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where I'm at. And I say that a lot. <laughs> I I agree with what they said. Like, I really like the hero picks. And the other thing is three of them have resistance to magic or better. The only one who's left out is the high elf captain. So you've got big hitters who are going to be hard to slow down with magic. And the only thing that's killing me is the numbers and the the lack of cav that's not heroes. But, oh, man, maybe like a weak valor because of what I just said. And then the might is kind of low. So even though you have the three mounted heroes, they might not be able to move a lot because they're not going to be doing like as many heroic combats to like shift around the battlefield where you need them. So you're kind of relying on them being where they need to be, which is not the worst thing to do, considering you have three of them, right, who can do pretty good fight pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'll go with the Valor. Okay, and the final list of today will be Richard's list, which is a 800-point impossible alliance with Isildur. Okay, since we're going to just jump into the deep end with the Red Alliance, I'll start with my leader as Denethor. Uh, leading six warriors in Minas Tirith with shield, uh, six warriors in Minas Tirith with spear and shield, one knight of Minas Tirith with shield. Uh, in the second warband, we have Hurin on horse, leading six warriors in Minas Tirith with shield, six warriors in Minas Tirith with spear and shield, one warrior in Minas Tirith with banner, spear, shield. In the third warband, we have Madril, leading three warriors in Minas Tirith with shield, and four warriors in Ministerial with Spear and Shield. And then finally, we get to Isildur, uh, a captain of Numenor, and then Forlong, leading one clansman of Lamadon. There's 40 models in total at 800 points, uh, 14 might, and one bow. And that is what we call an honesty bow, not eight bows. It's how you play them. Maximum honesty. There you go. Maximum bows for maximum honesty. <laughs> Integrity bows. So I guess my thinking was because it's a red list, I kind of want to stop the penalties from hindering my list. The biggest one being the breakpoint individually for each allied faction. So the core of my units are administered, so I'm not too worried about them. Isildur is with the Captain of Numenor, so you would have to kill both of them to break me. And Isildur isn't my leader, so there's less incentive to go after him. And then I also have Forlong and one Clansman of Lamadon, which has base courage six. And then I'll just get him to run to the corner of the map, hopefully be on an objective, but if not, just you know hide under a hole somewhere. And then with the Warhorn that Forlong brings, he'll be courage seven. So very unlikely that that contingent will break as well. 
the Warhound doesn't apply to the rest of the army, right? It's just the little fiefdoms, the two guys? No, no, it's it's everyone in your list. Oh. <laughs> Only yeah. banners are limited to your faction. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're saving that for the next FAQ. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the strategy behind this is, as you can tell, I have a lot of warriors of Minas Tirith. Just plain Jane, D7, shield wall, hunk of metal. Just basically don't die. Stand in a circle, stand in a square, whatever the hell you want. Just just live. And then I'll go to town with, you know, Hurin, Isildur, the captain of Numenor, with Lance, Forlong with a war spear. So I have a lot of mounted heroes. And since the captain of Numenor can't contribute his heroic march to the Warriors of Minas Tirith, I have Madril for that as well. Yeah, so, you know, Denethor, he can hide alongside the clansmen of Lamedon if he wants, just in the corner somewhere. I find it so funny that they went out of the way in the FAQs to make Bormir and Aragorn not allowed in the same list, but then you're allowed to have Denethor and Isildur in the same list. <laughs> This is this is totally different. This is totally different. Yeah, like yeah. Aragorn, Boromir is just disgusting and unthematic. Yeah, this is so thematic. <laughs> I, I mean, this is kind of um, I think just putting this down on the table, your opponent would just be so confused that they just won't know how to play against it, and then you, you would just win. Because like, <laughs> there's just so many heroes just will be running around, and it's a lot to take in. Like. You have three different uh, factions that kind of work on their own. Like you said, three mounted heroes that can hit pretty hard. And then kind of just a really cheap defense seven shield wall to um, to grind. You mentioned the Captain Numenor not being able to use his march on the, most of your army. So I was thinking, would it be better if you swap that Captain and Numenor and got like, I don't know, like a... Upgrade like Forlong to Immerhill or something, or maybe take like an Angbor or something. Um, um, well, well, the, the reason why I included the Captain of Numenor is I don't want to break if someone kills a Zildor. Okay. Not that it's easy to kill a Zildor, but now it's like they have to kill a Zildor and the Captain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The Captain still has good stats, you know, even if you can't use his Heroic March. So, yeah, I don't think it's a bad pick. I was just thinking whether there could be like a better pick. But he's still um, pretty solid. I mean, it's uh, Denethor being the leader is is pretty... I like the idea of that with Hurin to kind of protect him. I think against magic, uh, I don't know how well this would do, because some parts of your list, your heroes have like one will, like Hurin, Madril, and Forlong only have one will. And Denethor, I think, he might have like three will. He's got three. Yeah, three will, so like he's fine, but... You have four heroes with one will. So, you know, there there might be certain compositions that could be a little bit tough. But, you know, I, I, I think it's a really interesting composition. And I think you can do some pretty uh, neat tricks with it. But, yeah, you've negated sort of the breaking issue. So I'll give this one a, a low valor seeing on paper. It's, it might be hard to guess how it might actually play out. But just from the look of it on paper, it looks pretty strong. So low valor. No, I really like the hero choice of this list. The use of Denethor as a leader. You didn't take 18 Warriors of Minas Tirith in his warband, but being able to take higher than 12 is always useful for the low point cost. He's only I, Valor. Oh, sorry, right. He's only Valor, so 15. Hurin, I feel like in any list over 600 points that you have Gondor, Hurin just magically appears because his special rule is fantastic. 
Madrill is Gondor's Guritz. So, of course, you'd want him. I think the only thing that I'd really worry about at all would be that Forlong and his friend there, depending on deployment. Of course, if you can get him off into a corner somewhere, uh, odds of them fleeing the board or dying really uh, decreases. So really only in Maelstrom deployment would I think that would be an issue. Otherwise, I really enjoy the list as a whole. As you said, defense seven, shield wall, just, you know, square, circle, rectangle, parallelogram, whatever you want, as long as it doesn't die. That's all you really need it for. The heroes otherwise will do the job and... Isildur's not even your your uh, leader, which I think is a seal, one of Isildur's greatest values, is the ability to really just be second hero that runs around just beating up on everybody else, the same way he beats up on uh, Elrond's belief in humanity. And no, yeah, it's great. I love it. It's a hero of valor. So just as a small tactics thing, you mentioned putting the clansmen hiding him with Denethor. I really wouldn't do that, because there's still a chance Denethor can go insane and then kill that clansman. And yeah. then as soon as Forlong dies, you're broken. Yeah, now so, that I think about it, I, I think I wouldn't hide Denethor, because I also want the re-roll from her in. So, oh. so Denethor would probably be in the middle of that Minas Tirith Kumbaya circle. I, I think, yeah, honestly... Even though you have Huron, I'd still say in half your games you're gonna give up VPs for your for your leader, if not like more than that. But it's still good. Like if you didn't have Huron, it'd be like a, a the list would be much worse. But yeah, having what, three, four, yeah, four heroes with fight five plus, most of them with either strength five or plus one to wound or both. That's that that's gonna do a lot of damage. Like you'll mess up a lot of a lot of guys really quickly. And then backing that up with the, the pure numbers of the shield wall is really good. I really like the 14 might, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that there's six can only be used by one faction. Five can be used by one faction and three can be used by one faction. So it's not like crazy. Your heroic moves are going to be really weird, but I mean, still that that could be a bonus. You know, you could use that to your advantage. That's just tactics. I, I don't know how that would work super well. I had a lot of heroic combats, I guess, from all of them. Oh, actually, yeah, if you just did, like, a burnout strategy in the first round of combat where all four of those mounted guys call heroic combat, and you just blow through your might, that's... <laughs> that's going to be a lot of dead guys on your opponent's side. That's, like, what, potentially 16 dead guys with just those four heroes? That's, yeah, that would be pretty devastating. I'm I'm sitting at a Valor, I think. Maybe a perfectly right-in-the-middle Valor. I kind of wanted to go for like a really high one, kind of peaking up there, but the Impossible Alliance is throwing me off that, and then the Denethor as the leader is also kind of throwing me off that. Yeah, I'll just say it's it's Valor. Just remember that Denethor would have the Warhorn in effect as well, so even though I lose the Minas Tirith army bonus, he still gets the plus one courage. True, true, true. To fight this, you definitely need to pick like one strategy of I'm going to go for Denethor and Huron, and then you go all in for that. Or I'm going to go for Forlong and the Clansmen and go all in for that. Because if you try and go for like one of them and then get distracted a bit, you're just going to get caught up by all those fight five heroes. Still got the two guys who can strike. Yeah, that's fine. And he still throws the ring. So you can basically, quote-unquote, indefinitely go against heroes who are striking. So 
I just want to mention that that strategy with Sealdor and other large heroes going in in one turn and exhausting half of their might store in one turn with heroic combats, I have seen it once before with a Sealdor. I remember that game. <laughs> yes, you do. It, it didn't end well for me. It was absolutely devastating. That one turn did so much damage. And I think, you know, with the heroes that you have and the massive defense cylinder of Minas Tirith that you've got going there, that is a perfectly viable strategy. In fact, it is an absolutely terrifying one because the amount of damage that can be done by those heroes in one turn is fantastic. And Defense 7 Minas Tirith will just stand there and shield for a turn. You lose nothing and eliminate a quarter of your opponent's army in, in the first turn of combat. Recovering from that is nearly impossible. Can we coin that term, the defense cylinder? I, I love that, Alex. It's beautiful. <laughs> All right, so those have been our army lists for this week. Let's move on to our open topic. So the open topic for this week is how to run a good tournament. And I think all of us here have either hosted or helped host tournaments in, in the past for our local events. It's been close to a year now since uh, we've hosted anything. So this topic, you might have to kind of dig into your memories a bit. But yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a good um, topic discussion. So generally, like if we're not going into... Before we go into specifics of um, what makes a good tournament, what kind of events are your guys' favorites? Like, do you prefer the big, like, multiple-day tournaments, high points, uh, low points, the small tournaments where they're, like, single-day? Yeah, just in general, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I think, for me, usually it's those multi-day events where you have anywhere from, I'd say, 16 or more players just because that two-day situation really kind of builds the atmosphere. The longer the tournament goes on, the more different things will come into play. Three-game tournament, it's a lot of fun, but you know, if one person wins all three, it becomes obvious pretty quickly sometimes who is going to win, whereas like a two-day, five-game tournament really takes a lot longer to resolve, and I think a lot of players stay in it longer than the, those shorter tournaments. Yeah, just to add on to what Alex said, with the short three-game tournaments versus like a two-day, five- or six-game tournament, with a game like this that involves probability and rolling dice, I feel like everyone is going to have like bad games and stuff, and sometimes in a three-game tournament, like that just might go against you, but in a five- or six-game tournament, we can finally use Ian's favorite phrase that it all balances out. <laughs> yeah so i feel like in that way even if you have like a rough game in a six game tournament like you could still come back from that if you know you're a good player so that's what i like about it i also like the fact that at the end of like the first day a lot of people like usually tend to like gather and talk about their games and kind of just like think over you know whether it went well or it didn't go so well they can kind of reflect of it and i think if you're the type of person to like analyze your play that gives you more room to like kind of change your style of play for the next day and just even doing that 
going for dinner with some some of the tournament players and just having fun and talking about the games like honestly that's probably the best part of like the big tournaments for me that is a huge part of tournaments that's why i love those two-day events the community aspect of it but also the discussion that goes on between day one and day two like you said the analyzing when you have a one day three game tournament that first game goes by half your players just lost their first game you'll probably start to see like a quarter or a third of your players lose focus or lose a certain amount of interest in such a small tournament that first loss can be so crushing whereas in a six game tournament even after the first day no matter where you stand everyone's still jostling for position the competitive interest is still there for everyone, which I think is really good. You know, you don't like to see your players start to lose interest after one or two games. I think it's a good time to jump into the first topic, which is the number of players and the size of the tournament. Like Alex said, you know, a smaller number of games, wins and losses mean more. I find that for smaller tournaments where it's only like three games or four games, we usually attract more casual players. Sometimes like people that we don't see as regulars, they'll turn up and they'll play in these one day events because they feel like it's less pressure. It has a less like overall competitive feel to it. So it's definitely like a different atmosphere, which isn't necessarily better or worse. It's just like it's a different kind of tournament. There are more venues that can host smaller tournaments. I know in, in our local scene, it's sometimes we would only have one or two options if we want to host like a event with more than 20 players, just because there aren't a lot of choices. Well, I'd, I'd say that well, the biggest difference is, is like you're saying, yeah, you get a lot more casual players on those one day events, but then you also get a lot less people traveling from further away because it's just not as worth it. Like for us, whenever we host one day tournaments, we might get a couple guys just hopping over the border from the U.S. who live really close. But the guys who live down like a few hours, like four or five hour drive, they're not going to come up for one day. It's just it's not really worth it for them unless they're coming up with a family to do some touristy things. So we don't see them as much. And then just going back to the social side, it is really nice to just connect with other people and play people from other metas and stuff, too. So I think I prefer the two day ones overall. But every tournament being a two day tournament would be like that'd be a lot. That's a lot of time commitment. So there's definitely a place for the one day ones. Yeah, I think um, I prefer them a little more, too. I just prefer the, the longer two-day ones, um, you know, just because you have the chance to come back and it does even out a bit more. And and I guess from a personal story, I remember one three-game tournament, was it, that we, we all went to? And then I wasn't very happy because at the end of the day, I believe Charles won the tournament on three wins. And then I was also a runner-up on three wins. We were both 3-0, and and we were going to play each other if there was a fourth game, which I thought I had the advantage because of our army list, and I thought I would have a good chance against them. But but then, because there was only three games, Charles got to take it away because he had a little bit more uh, victory points than me. So, yeah, I was still a bit salty about that one. Who could tell Richard was a little bit salty about that one? I couldn't. <laughs> it wasn't obvious at all. I, I can't tell even now. <laughs> But yeah, the three-game tournaments, I think it's a very good way to get people out, like you guys are saying, for like a little bit more casual or if you're getting your community started. And the points range can be really variable for three-game tournaments, too. If you want to make it like really big, lots of 800, 1,000 points, all-day kind of thing, you can do that. Or if you want to go lower, like five, 600 points, but then it's only going to take up like seven hours of your day. That's a lot easier for people to come and like digest personally if i'm running a one-day tournament 
I used to do a lot of three games. And then the past two years, I'd say we probably moved over to like really low points, 400, five, like 500 max, but then do four games, which is what people locally can handle. But then <laughs> it's a stretch. People are usually pretty tired by the end of that. So I don't know. It, it, it's an interesting dynamic about how you can balance that out. But then you get, like, the first day at Nova when we went, which was four games at 800 in one day, and that was exhausting. Those days where we was like, what happened? Well, you know, I got up, and I ran to the McDonald's across the street, and I got back, like, five minutes before game one started, and then I played four 800-point games and was finished at, like, 8 p.m., then we went to a seminar, and then I got up the next morning and played another two games, and by the end of those two days, it was just, like, ringing in my ears constantly. <laughs> Forgot the copious amount of beer at the, the night before in between. <laughs> so I think all four of us prefer the two-day events. The one-day events definitely have their place, like Ian said. Just being able to intersperse them, you know, something more casual. You see people bring lists that maybe they wouldn't bring to a two-day event, something they just want to try, which, of course, Ian always wants to try something. So you'll always see something different there. I haven't had a tournament in, like, ten months, basically. I have so many lists. It's a disaster. Yeah, we're going to have to have, like, a one-day tournament every weekend for the first, like, three months once we can. So what's everyone's favorite points level and number of games for one day and two day? I think for me, for a one day tournament, I like four games for 500 points. And in a two day setting, I think 800 is perfect. And five games, I think. If you can do 400 or 500 points for four games in one day, that is a really solid setup because that fourth game does make a pretty big difference when it comes to the standings and getting everybody separated. It's also not terribly difficult to organize in terms of logistics because it is a one-day tournament. Once you get into the two days, then I would say... So a six-game tournament at 800 points is probably where I like it. I pretty much agree with you guys. Um, You know, getting as many games as you can in the uh, one day, ideally four, um, around 500 points, and then two days, 800 points, five games... Is probably perfect for me. I like 500 a lot more than I like 400 points, but I know it's it's hard for people to like handle doing that, and you need to make the games longer if you're doing that. So I would say for a one-day tournament, I my ideal would be four games, 500 points, but four games, 400 points is really good too. And then for like a two-day one, five to six games, it's it's the same kind of thing, but it's for games. Like five games is good, six games is better. So I think I would prefer six games at like 700 as opposed to five at 800, if that kind of makes sense. But mm-hmm. both are really good. I think Nova was the only time we've done six, right? So that was uh, <laughs> that was quite yeah. different. I think any time we've uh, proposed it locally, people have gone, oh my god, no! Everyone was like, absolutely do not do that to us. <laughs> so... so the next topic is the rules pack. So... What are some things that is important for a good tournament when it comes to rules packs? So this could be scenarios, boards, how you lay out the terrain, and anything that you want to ban. So like banning certain alliances or banning certain factions. No bans on alliances, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Since the new edition, we have been banning uh, impossible alliances, which now that like we've talked about it a little more, I'm pretty open into um, just allowing impossible alliances. Like, I think the penalties, there's enough of them that, you know, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I honestly can't even remember us like banning impossible alliances. For thematic reasons, usually. We've had it tucked into the rules packs that we've used, and I'm just going to let everyone in on a trade secret. Charles, I don't know how you do a lot of yours, but I copy and paste most of my rules packs. <laughs> like, I think we wrote, like, one or two, maybe, like, three or four years ago, and it's just been copy-paste, copy-paste, let's edit a few things, make sure this is all suitable, change, update all the rules in it. But, like, the, the bulk of it is the same. Yeah. But as for the Impossible Alliance thing, I think we, we've had this discussion before. We're like, yeah, we should ban it. You know, we'll keep it at that. And then maybe a year after the new edition came out, we're kind of like, what's the point in doing that? Because even in casual play, we don't really see anybody running Impossible Alliances. So I, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you to open it up more. As for restrictions, I think the only one I have is a two model minimum or a four model minimum. I prefer having, I think, the four because I don't like it when the only way an army can be broken is if you table it. And also, I hate smog. Because <laughs> three models still doesn't break if two of them are dead, right? Because you round down. No, no, you. if you have three models, you break after two. Do you? Am I mixing that up from last edition? Yeah, yeah, they changed it. Because uh, you're, you're over half now. Sorry, yeah, you round down. Sorry, so a three model minimum. Okay. In terms of terrain, we usually, I think we keep it at about, what was it, like quarter to a third of the board covered in terrain. And we try to have like a couple of them to have woods so that like armies with woodland creature can actually use them. But I think generally our terrain is from the community, just like people bring their collections and then we kind of, the TO will just organize them onto the boards to make sure each table has like an acceptable amount of terrain. Yeah, I, I would say that for the most part, our terrain is pretty balanced. I remember going to, when we went to Nova, which is like known for its terrain. And plus there's like, what, 80 some players. So there's 40 something boards. And the ones on the lower tables tend to be extra like nice looking, but borderline unplayable sometimes. <laughs> so I think there was some difference where I think the ones closer to the top tables were a lot more balanced so locally, we obviously don't have the amount of players or terrain to have that luxury. So we kind of just try to even it out and, yeah, just, I guess, have that, like, fair experience for everyone. Our terrain selection it has gotten a lot better over the years as, like, we've progressed as a community, though. Like, if you went back four years, if we had a tournament at Games Workshop, we're throwing, like, everything on the table besides, like, the 40k stuff. But now that everybody's kind of like, the community's just kind of matured a lot more. We've got a few guys who have 3D printers who are printing stuff out and making some really nice boards. It's definitely looking a lot better and a lot more balanced. And then, you know, also we're finally reaching the stage where we don't end up with, you know, two or three boards that are just only Osgiliath ruins, as pretty as they are. <laughs> I've been playing on them for so long. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that one Minas Tirith board. A couple of our uh, local guys that are currently working on that's going to be a lot of fun i think for sure we try and definitely vary it up now it's all about just kind of mixing it up making your players really kind of look at each board and figure out how to play it none of them are really the same in terms of scenario selection i know that at the beginning of the edition our preference was towards pre-selected scenarios and just have like, like a balanced amount of killing ones and objective-based ones and movement ones. We'll, we'll have usually like one or two of each in the pack. But I think since the match play guidebook came out, we've been doing more randomized. 
I know that they've kind of divided the scenarios into pools in the new book, and it kind of makes picking scenarios more balanced. Do you guys all prefer randomized scenarios as well? I think it definitely adds an element of spontaneity, especially dating back to when we had tournaments in the time of having six match play scenarios. And it was like, well, we're going to pick four of these six and you were going to get a lot of the same scenarios. Then we had 12 scenarios and it varied a bit more. Now we have 18 match play scenarios and they're in pools. So that's really changed, I think, how we set up our tournament rule packs. Sometimes now we don't even have to say we're going to have these scenarios in the game. We say we're going to have this many games and we're going to be rolling from these pools. You know, nobody can really gear themselves towards one particular scenario or one set of scenarios because you're going to get one from each pool. And I I think that's really improved how scenarios come out because now we're not saying, oh, well, you know, we had Lords of Battle in the last tournament. We can't have Lords of Battle in this tournament. Or we had two of this type of game, so we can't do that this tournament. Now it's very much like we're going to have them from these pools and then you let the die decide. Yeah, it's kind of, I guess, to just touch on what you were saying, Alex, there's like a few ways now you can select scenarios. You can completely pre-select them, which is, well, I'll get into that in a minute. You, you got to do that very carefully. Or you can do like the pools, like you're saying, which is, which we've kind of done that before, where you have like, okay, it's going to be one of these three scenarios for the round one, one of these three scenarios for round two, or you can do it completely random and you just roll the D6 and then roll another D6. And they all present different challenges and different themes, I guess, to each tournament, right? If you're pre-selecting all of them, people can really cater their lists to that pack. If you're having completely random ones, then, yeah, it kind of makes army list building more exciting. Like, do I hope these scenarios come up and build for that, or do I try and make everything like like it can take on anything against any army? You don't really know. As for selecting scenarios, like you're saying, it is a very delicate balance getting that right. Like, if you're going to take a lot of objective ones in there, I know we like to include, like, a Lord's Battle or something like that just to, to be a discouragement against hordes. Personally, I think I'm kind of opening up to having more random scenarios. I don't know. I think so, because you know what? At the end of the day, now with the extra new six scenarios, there's only a 1 in 18 chance we're going to have to play Heirlooms of Ages Past. That's way better than 1 in 12. <laughs> 1 in 18 is one too many. I mean, you're right, but... (laughs) I think I agree with you guys. I like the random factor. But I guess in defense of the pre-selection and how we used to do it in the past, the the one positive I see is that as list builders, I, I think it kind of showcases your skill a bit in that sense. Because if you can look at the scenario pack and look at what exactly you need versus someone who doesn't take that into consideration, then I think you'll be bringing a more catered and a strong list to the tournament. From time to time, definitely, I think having the pre-selected four games where everyone knows ahead of time, you're playing these scenarios. This is what you have to do. These are the objectives you're going to have to hit. Do you think there's a difference, like at lower points, do you think you prefer to have scenarios pre-selected or random, or at higher points you prefer to have random, or like, do you think that there's a different weighting towards what you should do for more of them if you're at higher or lower points? I don't really think there's a difference. I kind of see both just being nice to switch it up once in a while. Um, I, I don't think at lower points it would be like a bigger advantage or whatever. The fewer games, though, 
fewer games, I think it would matter. You don't want to do random as much because you don't want to be stuck with like three very similar scenarios. But once you get into the five or six game range, then I think that's where random scenario picking really shines. Yeah. The other thing I was going to touch upon is VP scoring. So I think how we've always done it was that major victories was calculated by having usually three or four more victory points than your opponent. And with the new match playbook that came out in there, it says if you have double the VPs, then it's a major victory. And I don't know, when we all kind of read that, it kind of caught us off guard because we've never played it that way. I know we haven't had too many events since the book came out, but what are your guys' like favorite ways of scoring or, or like think this is the best way to do it? Yeah, like do you have a favorite way to calculate VPs and TPs? I think we had a discussion about this probably almost a year ago now. <laughs> From what I remember, I'm pretty sure where I stood was that like at higher numbers of games, the new system is fine and it works well. But then if you get down to like lower numbers of games, like three games... Our older system works well because it, it, it's more balanced. Under the old system, which I think a lot of people still use, the difference between a major win was if you defeated your opponent by three or more victory points. And the one thing I found with that was that oftentimes a victory condition was worth three points. So you'd only really beat your opponent by one victory condition. More than three. I think it was four, wasn't it? Four an hour higher? Yeah, yeah, basically. Because yeah. we had it like that for a while. And then people kept on complaining. They're like, like you're saying, yeah, that was a big issue. Yeah, so I, I think that became, for me, my personal favorite way of deciding the end result was four or more victory points. Because in most scenarios, that meant you either had to win the largest victory condition by at least double, or you had to win multiple victory conditions over your opponent instead of just one. Whereas the, the issue of having double the number of points of your opponent is... If you beat them 8-4 or 12-6, then yes, it's a major victory. But if you beat your opponent 2-1, it's a very tight game, and I wouldn't consider that a major victory. That's, yeah, that's definitely the core of the issue with, with I think, with the new system. I will say the other thing is is getting draws and stuff. Is It's like, I don't know if I prefer the new one or the old way, because the new way it is, like a draw or minor loss, it's, it's it doesn't really help you, like, at all. Unless you're getting into, like, really big numbers of people playing, where, like, every single tournament point matters. If you're playing with, like, 16 to 20 people, getting a draw or minor loss is, is almost the same thing as a major loss in the new system, in terms of scoring, right? Yeah, I think I prefer um, how we used to calculate EPs, and uh, I don't know how the international events are going to do it when tournaments come back and we're traveling but locally i think at least the tournaments that i host i think i'm going to stick to the old way of calculating uh, tournament points i think it's more balanced and it's a little more forgiving for um, close games yeah i'd agree with you i don't think i'd move over to the bigger system the final thing for this open topic the awards for each tournament so we, we all like to win prizes at an event, and for locals, it, it really depends on like how much is in the budget from how much money we have get from tickets or if it's by donation. But typically, we'll try to have either store credit or just have some models available for people to win and take home. But in terms of like awarding winners, what do you guys think is like the best way to have the awards? Usually, we will have like the podium, right? Like first, second, third. And then, like, the other awards. So, 
I think in an ideal world, and this this would only work if you had like 20 plus players, but in an ideal world for me, I think I'd have like the first, second, third, best painted army, and then like a separate category, like favorite army. So like theme or just like terrain board, everything included in that. And then I'd probably have a best sport or what have you, something along those lines. And what was it called? Nova challenger of champions kind of thing. So just for those who don't know, that's basically whoever plays against the person at the top table in the last round and loses gets that one because usually they would have been a contender for one of the the podium positions, but if they lose that game, they usually end up getting knocked way down to like fourth or fifth, so they won't don't get anything. And I really like the idea of that one because that that person still put in like a lot of effort and they still did really well, right? I, I agree with splitting up best painted and favorite army because sometimes the favorite isn't necessarily technically the best painted. I also think for bigger events, you might want to split up good and evil, have like a best good and best evil, kind of like what they do at Nova, just because you want to give players from both sides a chance. And maybe maybe if the prize pool is bigger at bigger events, you'll be able to afford to have that. I think best sport is a little bit controversial. Personally, I don't like including them because it's like I find that not everyone is outgoing in a game. I don't think that they should be necessarily punished for that because I feel like the people who win best sports are the people who are the most outgoing and not necessarily like nice with good manners and, and things like that and being a good sport. But I don't think it's always the people that deserve it the most that win. I definitely would echo that about the best sport. I think it's if we only have a limited number of, of, of prizes like that, it's probably the first one that gets cut because of that reason. Because, like you said, it just kind of becomes uh, whoever is the more charismatic. Like, you could have somebody who's just, like, super quiet, but, you know, give you a great game, but you're not really going to remember that game as much or how they interacted. Whereas somebody who's, like, maybe not as good as, like, a nice sport, but they're, like, they talk to you a lot, like, they're more outgoing, they're more whatever, like you're saying, then you're probably going to remember that more when you're thinking about voting for best sport and stuff like that. So it's tricky. It's tricky to measure that. You guys forgot the the best award, the wooden spoon. I think uh, that one's uh, just fun to have. I know, I guess, in certain events where, you know, a larger event where you end up not doing so well early on, then I guess that's something you can potentially look forward to. Plus, um, it's always nice when a new player, first-time tournament goer, gets a prize and they, you know, are able to realize that even though it is a competitive tournament, that, like, our hobby, like, we're not as intense as, like, the people in 40K. So, like, you know, you could still win prizes when you finish dead last. Yeah, I just also, like, in, in the same kind of vein, just having random draw prizes as well, where, like, people who podium can't get them or people who get other prizes can't get them, but you still have, like, a few things that anybody can get, like you draw your name from a hat. I really like those as well because it keeps people invested in playing the games and, and showing up. All right, I think that has been our discussion. Uh, Thank you all for listening and look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast.